Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Never Strays Far is brought to you by Chapter 3 and the Roadbook Cycling's Definitive Almanac. You can buy the very few remaining 2018 and 2019 first editions as a special bundle price for just £55 by visiting www.theroadbook.co.uk. And if you enter the discount code CLASSIC, we'll throw in a free musette, and they're very beautiful, worth £7.50 with every order. And Chapter 3, the brand I created, founded in 2015, and it's uh, something that I've uh, always wanted to do, is bring to cycling a, a more creative individual style that isn't just based on one discipline, but multi-disciplines. And we're on the journey, and I hope you'll join us. Go to chapter3.com and see what we've got. Uh, there are lots of stories, there's products, there's uh, everything we hope that will help you find your next chapter in cycling. Ned, when I saw this crash, I, I saw them coming down the descent and I knew, well, I thought somebody had crashed and then I saw a specialised bike on the bridge and I was like, oh no, um, because, you know, we'd been talking about Remco a lot, obviously, building him up, building him up, building him up and then, oh, it was terrible and then when you saw the slow-mo and he, it looked really bad when he hit his face and then the bridge, it looked like he'd fallen I don't know how many metres and you think, oh, bloody hell. Just, your mind thinks the worst and then it, I, I find it quite hard to to talk after that, to be honest. Um, it all seemed a bit insignificant, just hoping he was OK. And then we heard that he was relatively OK. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. It was a bad one, though, definitely. That was Steve Cummings talking to me David, after yesterday evening, after he was driving away from work, um, we hadn't realised in all the chaos of yesterday, I don't think what had happened at Lombardia. Um, there's plenty of racing at Lombardia to talk about, and Matt Rendell, uh, later on in the podcast, will sum all that up for us. But I think um, because we missed yesterday's podcast, it would be kind of wrong if we didn't uh, kick off straight away with the, the news that broke yesterday of Remco Evenepoel, who is the name in world cycling at the moment, despite everything that's happened at the Dauphiné and his horrifying accident yesterday that could have been worse, um, but it does end his racing season. He's uh, injured his lungs and he has uh, fractured his pelvis. And that's that's what we know of his injuries. Um, I think it took you a while yesterday evening before you got in front of a, a terminal to actually see that accident for yourself, but I'm sure you have now, David. Yeah, I, I, to be honest, I only watched it once literally just once on social because i was like oh and because it was so far away and then it felt quite voyeuristic and I'm, I'm so pleased at that point i think i was aware that he was okay um so but i watching it in the moment must have been horrific because all you could see from that helicopter shot was that he was going off a big bridge with a huge vertical drop where the tree line was actually almost below the bridge 
And, you know, I think you're right. I mean, I think it could have been worse. But at the same time, I think, to rephrase that, the crash itself could not be very difficult for it to have been worse. I don't think he could have been luckier, uh, you know, because that was, yeah, geez, you know, you see what I mean? It's just, I I think, so lucky. Because to do, if whatever it is, I mean, I hear 10 meters or something, I mean, that's a big drop at, at any at any consideration. But in a race at that point where you've got no control of the fall, he could have landed on his head, could have landed on his feet, could have landed, I mean, he seems to have landed in the perfect uh, way for such an imperfect fall. And uh, God, he's lucky. Yeah, he is. Um, you know, it's the second big crash to befall that team uh, with a pair of their absolute superstar riders. And Fabio Jakobsen, of course, continues facing much more serious injuries, actually, to, to rebuild his career. Um, so Remco Evenepoel will be out, clearly, for what remains of 2020, which is a massive shame. He was mm. one of the um, stars who was going to the Giro d'Italia, was probably going to win the Giro d'Italia. Let's be brutally honest about it. Um, but, you know, other names emerge and... and and that was precisely the story of the Dauphiné, wasn't it? I mean, day by day, it just got more and more attritional. And in the end, kind of last man standing, but in the most, in the most thrilling manager, manner imaginable. Yeah, I mean, I think after yesterday's stage with the young German and the way that unfolded, and there were numerous crashes similarly, but they've now been grossly overshadowed, um, by, and rightfully so, I think. Although it is kind of starting to become a little bit too common occurrence uh, what's going on at the moment and you know it's, it's, it's probably a few things and we spoke about it off air before we commentated today it does seem we've been not been watching racing for a while and a good few months and then all of a sudden we're getting this uh, entire season kind of crammed into a, a very small amount of time and it's almost like we're getting uh, kind of cycling on speed uh, in more way than the one, in, in the sense that everything's happening at once. And I think a lot of these incidents do happen throughout a whole season, but they're spread apart and people kind of come to terms with it. But we're seeing it all happen kind of at once. And you would have to think that it just goes to show how bonkers the sport is and how absolutely insane it is. And it's always like this. It's just we're getting to see it all happen at once. And it's just it's a little bit shocking and eye opening. And it's very intense. And I, I for one, before thought, well, this is going to be really int- a good case study to see what it's like having a kind of a, a condensed calendar. And I'm beginning to think maybe it's not such a good thing. So I don't think any of us can handle this much emotion and drama and, and, and near tragedy all happening at one time. It's, I'd rather it was spread out throughout the year. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I agree with I agree yeah. wholeheartedly with you, David. I remember talking to you. I've been banging on for ages about and you just dismissed it quite rightly. I've always wondered what it would be like if um, uh, race profiles, you know, the uppy downy stuff um, were actually realistic because they're always scrunched up. You know, the, the y-axis is, has been exaggerated. So they're yeah. always exaggerated versions of what the gradients actually are. And I always said, why don't they just do realistic ones? And actually, the realistic ones would just be, even in big alpine stages, they just look like pretty flat lines, bizarrely. Yeah, they enough. would. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, but but this is like 2020 is like a race profile that has been scrunched into absolute um, exaggeration, isn't it? Like you no, sometimes get on the actually, if you go to the lesser races with respect to them, sometimes the race manuals print profiles that are grossly exaggerated. Yeah, they do. <laughs> and, and it's a, it's a bit like that in 2020. Mm. Um, and the Dauphiné was just like that. Uh, five summit finishes. It came to an end today without Primoz Roglic, who. It was an interesting one because we don't actually know 
We don't actually know what, apart from road rash, which you pointed out yesterday from his high-speed slap down, we don't actually know if he's injured beyond that. And normally, Mm. normally you wouldn't expect the yellow jersey of the Dauphiné, which is a big race, to climb off with victory within sight. That's a pretty pretty unusual thing unless they've got a really good reason to yeah i think it's um i think it's quite a bold move and i think in the sense that i it didn't appear that he had any serious injuries uh, otherwise if they we'd have heard of going to hospital getting x-rays etc last night if that was the case i think it's more a case uh, as we saw with egan bernal yesterday not starting and kind of my theory being that he was in a bit of a descending spiral overloaded with training and racing and just needed a break and because we're so close to the tour de france now they're already, even if you're your best form and you're beginning a, a totally controlled taper, this is when it starts. Now, this isn't a controlled taper anymore. They're, they're getting an inc- extremely hard race. Egan Bernal's getting a bit t- getting tired, rightfully so, because he probably, we don't know all the work he's done before and traveling. And then Primoz Roglic had, even though it's a road rash and it's taken the whole side off, his, his sole, whole left side skin off, if you like, that's a lot for your body to recover from, even if he can still win the, the race today. So that would have been probably, if he had done that today, which no doubt he probably wanted to, he would have won the race, but it would have delayed his recovery by another five or six days with the actual injury. Mm. And I think there's, I think it's taken a lot of uh, confidence and belief and uh, commitment for his team bosses to make him believe that the Tour de France is the only thing he's focused on. Don't start today. You need to go and rest and recover and win the Tour de France. You don't need to win the Dauphiné. You win the Tour de France. Stop. And I think that's the right thing to do. And any, any other sport, that's what they do. You know, it's like we kind of forget in cycling that you're supposed to carry on even when you've got these injuries. And, and Whereas actually, you should consider actually the big objects of the Tour de France. And that's huge. And it's very right when you've had a crash like that to not start the next day. And so I think maybe it's, it's quite grown up and it's not something we're very used to in cycling. It's not sentimental, is it? It's um, no. it's uh, it's very pragmatic, and it, it did expose the race to an un- the unusual sight of the final stage not having a yellow jersey in the peloton because Thibaut Pinot assumed control of the general classification but didn't wear the yellow jersey, which is a, a very honourable tradition in in cycling. I remember there was some controversy in two thousand and three at the Tour de France when um, Armstrong, I think for the first time in his seven wins, I think at the prologue he refused to start the prologue. In, the, in a yellow skin suit, in the yellow jersey, which I think up till that point, I, might be, I think I'm right in saying, David, was the tradition, mm. wasn't it? That the tour, yeah, it was. the returning yeah. tour champion would start in, in yellow. And mm-hmm. I think Armstrong made a point of saying, I need to earn it first. I need to earn that hmm. race lead. And, and Pino did the same thing yeah. uh, today, quite rightly. Uh, but the absence of Roglic just unleashed chaos onto the, <laughs> onto the race because Jumbo Visma no, no longer had a GC game to play. And so everything was suddenly possible and we, well in the podcast that didn't exist yesterday our two attempts to record it we spoke about the profile of today's stage Medjev to Medjev and we said there are multiple opportunities to attack long range medium range and short range here every round every corner and th- the removal of Roglic just kind of unleashed the demons onto the race didn't it and for the first well it never it actually never it never calms down um, which is really refreshing sometimes you know, you compare cycling as a global sports to other sports uh, and people say, oh, yeah, but I think it does more harm than good to sometimes see the entire five hours of racing because there's so so many periods where nothing much is happening. And I my counter to that is, you know, it, there will be one stage in, in five will simply never calm down. 
and mm -hmm. you, you want to be there to see it. So it was enormously frustrating that we were just reading, first of all, 15 riders getting on, uh, um, on the first climb going clear, then 23 riders containing all the hitters and Pino always there going clear, then 19 riders with two out front and Julian Alaphilippe and Pavel Sivakov, and that was roughly when we joined it. But so much had happened already before we got live pictures. Yeah, I mean, it was one of those stages that you dream you had the coverage beforehand because it it did appear like it was a, a one-day race, but a crazy one-day race because it Roglic not starting turned the race upside down. Up to this point, Jumbo Visma had been so strong that they could control at any moment and with complete dominance. And I think the peloton had fallen into that uh, kind of habit and that becomes a, a tactic that almost becomes overarching. So everybody bases their tactics on that. And that's what the team meetings would have been last night and this morning because nobody would have known Roglic not starting until they got to the start. And that in itself turns the race upside down because all of a sudden you're like, okay, we need to rip up the tactic book. We're going to have to do this completely differently now because it's FDJ that are going to have to control it and they're not going to be able to control this race. And all of a sudden, a lot of people who thought they weren't going to win GC or weren't going to win the stage suddenly were like, oh, we can win the GC. We can win the stage. And so everybody was on this hack. And it was... By the time, as he said, by the time the coverage started for us, about two hours from the finish, it was just all leaders left. Oh, and Wout van Aert, obviously, and Julian Alaphilippe <laughs> and Julian Alaphilippe and Sivikov off the front, and Sivikov doing uh, doing a, a, exactly the same, kind of a, a rare opportunity for any of us riders, just as it was would have been for Jumbo Visma riders today, is to go on the attack to win for themselves, and they they did a, a really cool job, I think. Team Minios World with Sivakov and also all the teams. I think it was a brilliant race, but it looked mm. horrifically hard. I mean, everybody was just on their hands and knees. You could see it. And by the end, what was brilliant, because there were no teammates left, Wout van Aert was one of the last to go, uh, it turned into this brilliant uh, kind of on the penultimate climb, was it three climbs to go, where Pogaccia launched a long attack uh, behind uh, Alaphilippe and Sivakov and took with him Danny Martinez, who was second on GC. And then came Lopez, uh, who again was third or fourth on GC. And so it became this absolute GC race with still 25Ks to go. And Thibaut Pino had no teammates left. And that's when something really cool happened, wasn't it? Yeah, well, it was the... It was Sunday. It was Sunday racing, Sunday. we decided. Yeah. So so we have we have already flagged up what Saturday racing was all about. The demonstr this kind of like rather useless demonstra demonstrative performative racing just to show that performance racing, race, yeah. <laughs> even even though you you're not actually in the race. Today was Sunday racing, which which is slightly different. It's a new it's a new term we've coined today. Yeah. Um and it may never occur again because we first noticed that it was Sunday when Julian Alaphilippe, who'd been animating the race, hunting a potential stage victory, trying to get himself the King of the Mountains jersey, was dropped eventually from that incredibly powerful group and went back to this Pino group that was massively under pressure, where, as you say, Pino was doing all the riding, trying to save his race, watching it go up the road. And at that point, you're thinking, there's actually no way back for Pino now. Then it, the camera cut back to Julian Alaphilippe, who'd been dropped on the front of this group, containing no De Koenig quick-step riders other than himself, burying himself, turning himself inside out, and taking 35 seconds yeah. back to the Martinez group on his own in pretty short order before he popped off. Mm. And I'm, I think we said it in commentary, we, you know, Alaphilippe does stuff that's aggressive that you simply don't understand. And then the penny dropped with you, David. Oh, yeah, mm. France. France. It was because, obviously, it's one of the biggest stage races in France it's the last one before the Tour de France it's a Frenchman leading 
Thibaut Pinot, who's the favourite for the Tour de France, if you like, from France and their last great hope uh, after Alaphilippe. So it was Alaphilippe and Thibaut Pinot, let's not forget, who were battling it out last year for the Richers. You know, that, they've become the darling boys of French bike racing and French sport, I think. So when Julian Alaphilippe went back, he had no teammates. His De Koenig, it was done. And he just started working for Thibaut Pinot. And then all of a sudden, what was brilliant about that? He then peeled off, his work was done, but then he'd opened up a can of worms because there were other French riders in that group who were individual, who were, didn't stand much chance of winning the stage or the GC, who had no choice <laughs> but to go and help Thibaut Pinot. Otherwise, they'd have been spat at and hated at and having to deal with some really <laughs> hardcore interviews. So it became this brilliant La France ensemble trying to defend the honour of Thibaut Pinot in their, their country. And it was, I, I thought, I've never seen it before. I, I thought it was brilliant. It was like Thomas Vuckler, who's the national coach, was in their ears, you know, as if he'd Completely. appeared in a, in, a, in, a, in a trickler kind of like team car behind them and was, and was um, calling the shots. Yeah, the other riders you talk about were the French national champion Warren Baguil, whose team leader Quintana was one of three big names who weren't in the final mix today and lost, just dropped out of contention. Quintana, Richie Port, and Mikel Landa, all of whom coming into the Dauphiné looked really good. And in fact, during the Dauphiné, for the most part, had looked really good. So uh, they were the three the older citizens, if you like, uh, the more experienced riders who really, really suffered today. And that's not great news for any of them, I don't think. Meanwhile, at the front of the race, um, because of the, the renewed hope, and then Pino, who looked really, really kind of like uh, on the back foot, suddenly got his second wind and just just got that. We've seen it before from him, haven't we? That absolute determination not to let this slip through his fingers. And he just, yeah, he just tortured himself to try and keep that gap uh, pegged back but Martinez was on a, a better day um, Sepp Kuss yeah. then attacked for the stage win and was never really seen again that was a brilliant yep. attack and the, the moment he definitively went you thought mm, that's probably that's probably the stage gone Martinez mm-hmm. playing a GC game he'd already disposed of his nearest rival Miguel Angel Lopez he was holding Pino and he was never less than about 20 seconds down in the virtual general classification and from that moment on you know when the, by the time they got to the airstrip um, Martinez clinched um, by far the biggest win of his career. I mean, you know, the general classification of the Dauphiné, ahead of the names, he's he's just huge. 24 years of age, the Colombian. You know, we're used to talking about Egan Bernal. We're coming to terms with talking about Ivan Sosa. Sergio Guita is one of the most promising riders. Nairo Quintana has been there or there. Rigoberto is around, his teammate is still. But, you know, the, the, the well of talent is just, shows no sign of drying yeah. up and Danny Martinez is right in the mix now and be very interesting to see what EF Education first do at the Tour de France with assuming that Igita can recover from his injuries and, and go again because they're a very, very, very dangerous team and that was a yeah. worthy winner. Completely. And I think and and behind that I just like to reiterate again Sivakov who did who was in that break with Alaphilippe oh, so yeah. long, crashed in the descent, but then just kept attacking. And then riding ludicrous. in a ludicrous, he finished third on the stage, didn't he? Is he third or yeah, third um, or fourth? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which uh, after, fourth, I think. Yeah, fourth. fourth yeah, I mean that was just a stunning ride, and that I, that will give hope uh, to Ineos uh, in the sense that they've done something right with the training, and the, the data is right somewhere, and he's come good at the end, so that's good. And but yeah, I think as you say, regards EF, they've got a great team, um, a very climate team, uh, but. You know, it's all slightly overshadowed, I think, by Jumbo Visma still, because the one day that Sepp Kurs has given his license to to kill, if you like, he kills it. 
and that's yep. very few riders can pull that off all right listen we're going to keep this relatively short today because you are very early in the morning you're getting on a flight to the united kingdom where you're going to have to beginning your quarantine time flying from yeah. spain um uh, annoyingly there are 13 days in between the end of the <laughs> Dauphiné today and the beginning of the Tour de France. So it may well be that uh, we'll be doing a bit of virtual commentary at the beginning of the Tour de France. But you yeah. are joining us all in, in the UK. I um, will be for nearby. That, for that race. Yeah. Yeah. Um, eventually. So, so, so we'll have to wrap it up because you've got to go and say goodbye to your family and read Harry Potter and, and all that sort of thing. Um, let's just let's just very quickly, though, before we do, let's hear from Matt Rendell because, you know, ordinarily... Uh, this race would have been the focus of all our attentions. It's normally the final and fifth monument of the season and occasionally gets a little bit overlooked, actually, because it is always in autumn and, you know, it's a wonderful, beautiful race that doesn't get the attention it deserves. So let's give Lombardia the attention it deserves and hear from Matt. That noise there, the slapping of water against, uh, well, concrete really, to be quite frank, uh, is the sound of Lake Como. And um, that's where I am, that's where I've been. Um, for the 114th Il Lombardia, um, first of which was held in 1906, and one by a guy called Giovanni Gerbi, who was 20 years old, and he was even younger than... Uh, Remco Evenepoel uh, would have been if he'd won Il Lombardia and he was I guess the hot favourite after his 51.7 kilometre solo attack in stage three of the Tour of Poland Uh, and here I've walked away from the lake and here is where the team buses are and you know what we just walked past uh, Jakob Fulsang who did win it and uh, Alexandra, or Alexandra Vlasov, who finished third, having sacrificed, having left it all out on the road for Fulsang. And I just thought, if I record a bit of sound of the lake and then quickly come over here, I could get Jakob Fulsang at a distance to say something into my mobile phone. But he's guys just gone. I'm watching him drive off. So anyway, that plan has gone. I think I can say this in Ned and Dave's podcast to shit. So, I'll give you a summary of the uh, Il Lombardia. And the summary is 231 kilometres. It's the first ever edition that's been held in the middle of August instead of um, the race of the falling leaves at the end of the year. And um, the 15th of August itself, i.e. the big bank holiday, the Ferragosto in Italy. And... um, and it was very hot, as you can imagine. Never dropped below 30 degrees C. Uh, quite difficult to commentate on, which is what I've been doing, because uh, you saw every single shot was this kind of enormously contrasty silhouette shot of lots of riders who, in any case, you haven't seen for months. But um, it's kind of, sort of, my favourite race, although every time I say something's my favourite race, I think of another race that's also my favourite race, or slightly more or something Strade Bianchi or whatever but anyway anyway it is one of my favourite races and it was magnificent um, these days I actually went to the chapel of the Madonna uh, di Ghisallo uh, where I've never been before even though I've 
Um, been lots of times to Il Lombardia. I've never been to the chapel, and it really is beautiful. And if you do get the chance, I thoroughly recommend it. I'm still quite emotional about it. Um, 48 or more hours since I've been, since I was there. Um, and that is where the 11 man breakaway uh, from the morning was caught. I won't run through the names, A, because I can't remember them, and B, because it pisses you off slightly you spend all morning oh, 11 guys better get all my notes together so that i can talk at detailed length about you know um emmanuel morin um of Cofidis, who's you know the least likely man in the race to win but either way um just as um we came on air the uh, peloton led by dries evans um of the conic quick net quick step with remco evanapol on his wheel caught the 11-man breakaway and there was no need ever to mention them. It was as if it had never happened. Um, Devonans, who's 37, is sporting a very adolescent sort of pencil moustache, um, led the entire peloton uh, to that left-hand turn from the main road that goes through Sormano and you, you dip a little bit and it's tiny and there's barely enough room to to get a couple of bikes uh, to abreast up it. And the amazing Harold Tejada, Colombian under-23 road and time trial champion last year, he um, um, muscled through, led Vlasov and Fulsang, and they kind of took the lead um, and, and formed a kind of wall across the road so that the expected attack from Remco would have to sort of get through them, negotiate them and so on. Anyway, um, that forms the semi-definitive breakaway, seven riders, three with Trek. Um, They couldn't make that numerical advantage count. Um, Two with uh, Astana, because after Harold Sefard had done his work, he kind of disappeared. And then you had the revelation, one of the revelations of the season, Vlasov and Fulsang and a bunch of other blokes, Remco men among them. They go up the top, descend down the other side, and as they descend down the other side, they get to um, a corner where there was a very nasty crash a couple of years ago. And on the next corner, there's potentially an even nastier crash. And the thing about these crashes is, it's cycling, you're live, you don't have any information apart from what you've seen with your own eyes, in a kind of grainy helicopter shot. You've got to get the tone right because it could be enormously serious. You know? This could be life-changing for someone or hopefully it'll turn out to have looked pretty ugly but, you know, not been so serious. But at the time, you have... And, and right now, I still don't know which of the two it is. Um, Evan Apoel, hits the side of the bridge. He's already lagging behind the other six. And I think that might be because he might have had a soft tyre or something affecting his steering. But anyway, that will all be cleared up long before you ever hear this, I should think. And um, he disappears down a, 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 a crevasse, is that the word, by a, a river. And it looks to all the world just like Philippe Gilbert. Um, a couple of years ago at the tour. Um, and then uh, the remaining six speed off, they get whittled down. Fulsang attacks on what's it called? The Chivilio, which is only 4.2k, averaging 10%. But after you've done 
200 and, you know, 15 kilometers of pretty hard climbing and very hard racing. Um, it seems like the Mortirolo. Um, he whittles it down to full saying George Bennett and Vlasov. Then on the next climb, there's San Fermo uh, della Battaglia. Uh, George Bennett tries a couple of attacks. They don't manage to dislodge full saying. Full saying looks at him and thinks, I don't think he's got any more left in the tank. Goes away and Bennett watches him go off. And that is Yotoro Lombardi. So, um, what's his face? Full saying is the first game ever to win it. George Bennett's the first Kiwi ever to stand on the podium. Vlasov is the third Russian ever to stand on the podium. And it was a very hot and, as you can hear, noisy day for everyone. But a great event and pretty unique. Um, a 15th of August in Lombardia. And that is all I have to say on that subject. Ti voglio Thirty-five years of age, um, uh, Lombardia goes to Jakob Fulsang. He, David, he adds Liege Baston Liege. He adds Lombardia to Liege Baston Liege. Yeah, I mean, I actually, amazing. I actually watched. I what I did is I kind of fast-forwarded through the last fifteen k's of Lombardia, and we just paused when the moves happened. And when he went, oh wow, was he strong? Mm. I mean, it was incredible. I mean, George Bennett did a fantastic ride, but the the way that Fulsang was riding, I mean, he dominated and it's that's he's another we kind of don't mention him for the Tour de France because it seems to always go slightly wrong for him but it would be crazy to write him off regards GC at the Tour de France as well I think yeah he may he may be focusing a little bit more on the Giro we'll we'll, we'll have to see but um another you know mm. rider of note who was in that final trio of riders with George Bennett was Alexander Vlasov now now without uh Remco Evenepoel at the Giro watch out for Vlasov I think he's worth a podium potentially and may even do something ridiculous at the Giro because he actually is no longer the Russian champion they had the Russian national championships today by the way as well as the Tour de Valonie which was won by Caleb Ewan and so some other Russian dude is now the Russian champion I can't be more specific than that but it's no longer nice. Alexander. <laughs> Thank you, David. It's no longer Alexander Vlasov. Um, <laughs> all right. So, so I've got another little package to run before I say goodbye to you, David. It's my little guide. Yeah, lovely. It's my little guide to. It's quite badly produced, actually, with hindsight. And lovely, a, lot that's of the, good. a lot of the things that I've said are already twenty-four hours <laughs> out of date. And given the way everything is changing as quickly as it is, just when you hear the bits that are a bit wrong. Just pretend you haven't heard them, right? I think in particular there's some stuff in there about Lander and Port, which probably isn't quite right anymore. <laughs> but here's my little guy. Never predict. Yeah, just, just forget, forget those bits, right? Here's my little guy that I recorded yesterday about how lockdown has affected various riders in the peloton. The effect of lockdown on all our lives appears, in part at least, to have messed with the natural order of things. And for the professional peloton, it has been no different. For every rider who's been able to discover some sort of annoying inner calm, focus and method, moulding and remoulding their physiologies and psychologies with distant and unknowable targets in mind, there have been another ten who appear to have frittered the time away on watching a box set of Ozark in their pants. And before going into our shuttered world, there was probably no way of guessing in advance which camp which rider would fall into. 
So here's a tabloid style and thoroughly unsatisfactory guide to the most notable lockdown losers and stay-home heroes that I've been able to observe from the torrent of televised racing since it all rebooted and we were able to consume it all again in our pants, like that box set of Ozark. Although in the case of racing, it gets more interesting rather than less. In the women's peloton, it's been like watching a particularly well-crafted Netflix trailer and then finding that the first episode won't load. Because the only televised race, and even then we only saw the last final 25 kilometres, has been Stradibianchi, two weeks ago to this day. Prior to that, we read reports of solid form from perennial winners Elisa Longo-Borghini and Anna van der Breggen as the women's peloton contested a non-world tour triptych of one-day races in northern Spain. But they were picking up podium places rather than flat-out winning. That's because they weren't allowed to by the incontrovertible dominance of the world champion Annemiek van Vluten, whose winning streak now spans not only lockdown but a calendar year. Six races in a row going back to the Yorkshire Worlds and running through to Siena's uphill finish, for which she was made to work hardest of all by a huge ride from Mavi Garcia of Ali BTC Ljubljana. Garcia is probably the most improved woman to emerge into the daylight of racing, definitely one to watch when we finally restart the restart on the 26th of August in France at the Grand Prix Plouet. But an honourable mention should go to the American Leah Thomas, who crashed on the gravel of Stradibianchi and then got back up to finish third. With the men, there are two slightly backfiring superstars to observe, both scratching around to remember what it was they used to do with such consummate ease before Covid messed up their lives. Though they're at very different points in their seasons, let alone careers. Neither Matthew van der Poel nor Peter Sagan have quite got to grips with the new normal yet. In the case of Mathieu van der Poel, his third place at Grand Piemonte suggests he's knocking on the door, whereas in the case of Sagan, two fourth places at Milano-Torino and Milan-San Remo are suggestive of a rider hanging on to form like muscle memory, rather than building sharply towards another peak. Who knows, their class will surely out at some point in the future to come. Likewise, a few GC and climbing riders appear to be finding life on the open road a little less comfortable than a few months of turbo training. It's clear that Chris Froome's in that category. The small matter of shattering his leg a year ago may be playing a minor role in his travails, but I'd add slightly underpowered 2020 versions of Yates A and indeed Yates S into the mix, Thomas G, Kwiatkowski, Castroviejo as well. And Egan Bernal looks shaken, bruised, stirred and out of the Dauphiné. It's all a bit surprising really. Even Nairo Quintana, who started 2020 in such sparkling form, looks like he might have spent a bit too much lockdown time wandering into rooms and then forgetting why he went there in the first place. And TJ Van Garderen is still infuriating me for his many admirers, TJ Van Garderen. And young Tadej Pogacar has had to watch on while Remco Evenepoel has definitively snatched his title of the world's most precocious young talent. There are plenty of riders who are holding their form just where you'd imagine them to be. Jakob Fulsang, Roman Badet, Richie Porte, although he's going well, Miguel Angel Lopez, to name but four, Julian Alaphilippe, to name but five. He's looking a bit tired, though. Fabio Aru makes it six. These par-for-the-course riders have emerged the other side of the world falling apart as if the world never fell apart in the first place and what's all the fuss about? Then, there are the smug few, who've gone into lockdown and started to use annoying phrases like, I didn't want to say this, but I've actually quite enjoyed it. Mostly they ride for Jumbo Visma and are called Wout van Aert, Primoz Roglic, George Bennett and Sepp Kuss, ably supported by Tom Dumoulin, Stephen Kreisfake, who had to abandon the Dauphiné with a dislocated shoulder, and in a slightly do-or-die way, the rubbery form of Robert Hessink. 
But it's worth noting the growing confidence of Valerio Conti, who can now climb with the best, Dauphiné stage winner Davide Formolo, who finished second at Stradibianchi, and Guillaume Martin, who's now mixing it with the very best of the climbers and not getting dropped routinely when the pace starts to massively increase. Other lockdown success stories include the spectral Emmanuel Buchmann, who appears to have morphed into something even more skeletal and invisible than he was before, and might well be ghosting his way onto another largely unclaimed bid for a podium finish. Not at the Dauphiné, he's crashed out of that, but why not at the Tour? And Thibaut Pino too looks energised, purposeful, strong as an ox and good to go. His team are clearly on the right trajectory as well, judging by the manner of Arnaud de Mar's victory at Milano Torino in a packed sprinter's field. And then there's the one. Remco Evenepoel will probably have won Lombardia by the time you hear this. And if he doesn't, well, don't blame me, it's not my fault. So there we have it, a little look at what we might have learned from the last two weeks of watching the telly, after four months of watching the telly. So I suggest we all now stay at home and carry on watching the telly. The changing fortunes are going to be fascinating. So there you go, David. That was our little, the end of our little flurry of uh, Never Strays Far. It was a bit traumatic yesterday, I have to admit, when I f- managed to fail yeah. to record both both versions yeah. of the podcast we did. But hopefully, <laughs> I'm looking at As my... Hour, hour and ten minutes, we'll never get back. We will literally, I mean, literally never get it back. <laughs> never <laughs> get just, back. Just, yeah. The data doesn't exist. <laughs> um, so um. I will, next time I see you, we'll probably go you know we've climbed up the charts done really well haven't we but there might be a bit of radio silence Mm. in between now and the tour but perhaps during your long period of self-isolation you might feel fit to pick up a microphone we can do stuff then yeah maybe not maybe not every single day maybe let's no well let's put it like that let's give our listeners a break yeah and um when we do meet up again it will be commentating on a bicycle race called the tour de france Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 